Well, how many of you love the word tonight? You know, I want to just let's remember that this weekend is the big weekend for go ahead and talk about it, Heidi. Sing to the King. Sing to the King. And uh, it's going to be the big production. And I'll tell you what, th there's people that will come to church at Christmas time like they do Easter. No other time of the year will they come. They'll come, you know, Easter or Christmas. And, and they can't tell you why. It's just Christmas. So you know lost people. You know, every week we're seeing people get saved. Every week. I mean, every week. Now, what we look forward to is every day. Every day. But every week they're getting saved. Now, if you get somebody here this weekend who's lost, maybe a family member, a friend, that person you've been praying for for years, they're liable to get saved. So sing to the King, and I'll be preaching on the arrival when there was no room for them in the end. And it's going to be a perfect message for people to come to Christ. So how many of you are glad you came to Christ? All right. Let's pray for them. Let's stand, everybody. And um, we're going to pray over the Word, and then you can be seated. It's winter out there, finally. I'm from New York. And, you know, the weatherman around here, when it's going to maybe remotely snow, you would think UFOs are coming. UFOs are going to land. All I remember from New York is snow tires and shovels and snow plows, and that's what I was born in. So, anyway. Well, what are you saying, Pastor Jeff? I'm saying Texans, and I'm a Texan. I grew up since I was five years old in Texas. So, don't get me wrong. But we can be a little wimpy, can't we? Yeah, all right. Well, let's pray together because we're going to learn tonight on how to get free from legalism and walk in grace, all right? So let's just pray right now. Father, we thank you for the power of the Word of God and that we have been delivered from do into done and from works into grace and we pray that tonight you will teach your word to us father bring it home renew our minds change us rearrange us establish us in the faith that was delivered to the saints now will you breathe a prayer church and say lord tonight speak to me Teach me in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you say with me, his word is good. All right. Tell your neighbor that and you can be seated. His word is good. I, I, I go through the books like this because I really do believe that the Western church, I can't speak for any other church because I'm not there, but the Western church is in trouble in lots of ways, doctrinally, theologically, our understanding of Scripture, we're in trouble in a lot of ways. A lot of deception is flooding the church. So the only real solution is to get up and teach the Word. Because thy Word, Jesus said, is truth. Thy Word is truth. And it doesn't change or bow to different cultures. Amen? Now, tonight we're going to look at something very, very important. You cannot understand the Bible unless you understand the Abrahamic Covenant. So we're going to look tonight at the Abrahamic Covenant. And you know, I'm really praying about doing a series that we'll just call the Survey of the Old Testament and Survey of the New Testament. It's almost like we'll be in seminary, sort of. It won't be dead. But I want you all to know the Bible. 
And uh, one thing that hit me today is you, you really can't know the Bible unless you understand Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. So let's dive in. Last time we saw that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took the curse of the law for us, quote, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. Now, what was the blessing of Abraham? Went through it last week. We have heard it taught that the blessing of Abraham was that you would be rich, that you should have the wealth like Abraham. That is not the biblical teaching. It's not it. The blessing of Abraham is salvation by faith. That's the blessing of Abraham. And, uh, you know, hey, most of the world will consider everybody in here rich. So you're already rich. They say, well, I don't feel like it, Pastor Jeff. Well, go to Africa. Go to Haiti. Go to some of these other places, and you'll come home going, I'm rich. Rich is relative. But here's what you can't buy. You can't buy salvation. It's through faith. All right? So the blessing of Abraham is salvation by faith, uh, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. How many of you have received that Spirit? The Holy Spirit. How many of you are glad for that? Isn't it beautiful? How do we get the Holy Spirit? By being a good boy or a good girl? How did it come to us? By faith. That's how we receive the Holy Spirit. Now, one of Paul's points in chapter 3 is that believers are the seed of Abraham. Now, we're in chapter 3 tonight. And we're almost going to finish it. That believers are of the seed of Abraham. They are the seed of Abraham. Verse 6 and 7 says, Just as Abraham believed God, and read it with me, everybody, it was accounted to him. What does that mean? It means that God said, You are righteous, Abraham. I declare you righteous. How? By faith. What happened when you and I believed the gospel? God declared us righteous. He made him to be sin who knew, knew no sin, that we might become, what everyone, the righteousness of God by faith. So God has given to us his righteousness and he has justified us. We have been declared righteous. What an incredible blessing. Now, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And Paul is going to drill this into the Galatian church over and over again because what's happened to them? Judaizers have come in, snuck in, infiltrated that church with false doctrine. What was the false doctrine? You've got to mix works with faith. You will not be saved only by faith. You've got to mix works, Old Testament works with your faith or you're not going to be saved. They're called Judaizers. I've told you that every cult in America requires that you and I do something in order for our salvation to be complete. They, it, it's, a, it's a works doctrine. Every cult takes away from the doctrine of grace and faith. Every cult. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, you name it. I don't care who it is. They require you to do certain things or you will not be saved. Not Christianity. Christianity is salvation by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. It is a what? Gift. Say with me, gift. Gift. Come on, everybody. Gift of God. It's a gift. You say, well, 
well, then where do works come in? Works don't save you and me. Works affirm that we are saved. Because once you get saved, what you do with your time, your body, your thoughts, your life changes. And God involves you and I in good works, good works that we were ordained to walk in before the world was even formed. Isn't that amazing? So that's where works come in. But Paul's whole point is, no, 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 you don't have to mix works with faith to be saved. So therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So we are Abraham's seed in that our salvation came the same way his did, by faith. Abraham was saved when he believed God. You were saved when you believed God. You heard, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And when you heard that, something in you reached up, and by faith you believed it, and God said, righteous, forgiven, justified, glorified, done. And he sent his spirit to live inside of you. And he changed you, gave you a whole new nature. And, that, and then after that happens, well, what you used to love, you hate. And what you used to hate, now you love. Here you are in church on a Wednesday night. Where were you on Wednesday nights before you were saved? I guarantee you, you weren't in church. Learning the Bible, right? Now, after having reviewed the conversion of Abraham, his conversion... Paul now turns his attention to the covenant or the contract with Abraham, and he begins with a contract principle. Now, this is very simple. I want you to look at verse 15. He, he's going to use an earthly illustration to make a point. He says in verse 15, brethren, I speak in the manner of men. He's, I'm, I'm going to talk in a way you can understand me is what he's saying. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. What's he talking about there? He's talking about a simple legal contract. He uses an everyday illustration. When a contract is drawn up in proper legal form and duly signed, sealed, and delivered, it becomes binding on both contracting parties. We've all done this with a house, with a car, with something. They sign, you sign. Once you both signed and both parties have said yay and amen, then you have a contract, Okay. It cannot be canceled or changed by somebody else. Thank God. This is the principle behind a contract. Once two parties have signed it, no outsider who doesn't happen to like the contract can come in and say, wait a minute, I'm going to change this contract. They can't do it. Okay? It can't be done. Now, that's, he says, when changes are made in a contract, both parties must agree or it cannot be done. God has adopted the same principle in his dealings with men. He cuts contracts, or what we call covenants. I got to thinking it'd really be better to call the Old Testament the first covenant and the New Testament the second covenant. Or we could say the first contract and the second contract. Because that's what they were. Now, in light of this principle, we find in the Bible eight major contracts or covenants. Let me show you what they were real quickly that God has cut with man. Because right now, you and I, we're under a contract with God. It's called the contract of grace. Aren't you glad it's grace? But let's look at some of the ones that preceded us. The, the very first one was the Edenic covenant. 
And the Edenic covenant governed the terms whereby Adam and Eve could live in the Garden of Eden. And what was that agreement? Don't touch that tree. You can have anything else you want, but don't touch that tree. If you touch that tree on that day, you will die. That was the contract. And they breached the contract. And we all have suffered for it. So that was the Edenic covenant, first one. Then came the Adamic covenant. And that detailed the new terms governing the life of sinful man on God's earth. The Edenic was before the fall. The Adamic was after the fall. And what was the contract? Hey, by Adam, by the sweat of your brow, now you're going to work. And Eve, hate to tell it to you, you and all your daughters, you're going to give birth in pain. How many of you ladies can say, that contract's true? Okay. I'm so glad I'm not a woman because I've seen them have those babies. That's tough. My wife almost killed me when she was having her baby because I, I was saying, come on, breathe. What we learned, and it all went out the door. All of the Lamas and all that breathing stuff, it all went out the door. I mean, it, it really did. She just commanded me to bring her some ice and shut up. <laughs> all right. But I digress. Now, the third Bible contract is the Noahic, Noahic covenant. The covenant God cut with Noah spelled out the new conditions that were to prevail following the flood. And he told Ham, Shem, and Japheth, you know, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky. And I promise you, I'm never going to destroy the earth with a flood again. And all those things he said, that was the Noah covenant. Then came the Abrahamic covenant. And that one, which we're looking at tonight, opened new vistas of grace and promise. And it is the covenant with which Paul is most concerned because this is the way he's going to unravel the argument of these Judaizers by going to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, uh, the fifth covenant was the Mosaic covenant, and that's also reviewed by Paul. And, and in chapter three, he's going to continually contrast the Abrahamic with the Mosaic covenant. And he's going to show you why the Mosaic covenant did not annul the Abrahamic covenant. That we did not move from faith to works when the Mosaic covenant was established. It did not overshadow and do away with salvation by faith. So keep that in mind. Now the sixth one was the Palestinian covenant. And that spelled out the conditions and terms under which the Hebrew people could live in the promised land. And then came the Davidic covenant, and that established the prospect of the millennial kingdom. He, he told David, your, your throne is going to last forever and forever and forever. And of course, he was pointing to Christ, the seed of David. Now, uh, the millennial kingdom, and it also confirmed the promise under the Adamic covenant of a coming kinsman, redeemer, and king. And then the last one, the new covenant that we're all living in foretold in the Old Testament and ratified at Calvary, not by ink, but by God's Son's blood. And that's the covenant of grace. Now, the covenant principle is basic to all of God's dealings with men. It's worth noting that from the time of man's fall, no matter what contract was in force, the basis of man's salvation remained unchanged. And what was it? 
God has only one way of saving men, no matter what age or what contract they're under. Grace through faith on the basis of the finished work of Christ is the only way to be saved. You and I have never been able to or ever will be able to save ourselves. It will not, cannot happen. We're not able. We're going to see that in a minute. We can only be saved by grace through faith. What's grace? Unearned favor. God saves us because he wants to. Not because we look pretty or handsome or are smart or doing good things. God looks at us fallen creatures and says, I'm going to extend grace. I'm going to reach out to you and extend grace. And when we say, yes, I receive your offer, we are saved by faith in God's terms, in God's word, in God's promises, and he declares us righteous with no works of our own at all. Now, Paul's point is that the Abrahamic covenant has remained in force. This is very important. The Abrahamic covenant has remained in force despite the later addition of the Mosaic covenant. Men are saved by faith just as Abraham was. Why does this matter? Because the Judaizers were coming in with the Mosaic covenant. And they were saying, you must do this, you must do that, you must this, you must that, you must not this, you must not that. And if you don't do this and don't not do that, you will not be saved. Well, Paul's going to say, that's not true because the Abrahamic covenant where you're saved by faith alone was not overshadowed by the Mosaic covenant, nor was it annulled by the Mosaic covenant. It's still salvation by faith. Aren't you glad we're saved by faith and not our works? I mean, how many of you would have gone to hell this week if based on your works? <laughs> I know that's a strong, but if you just left to yourself, some of you would have slipped right on in this week. The Abrahamic covenant was absolutely unconditional. It consisted of a series of contractual promises made by God to Abraham. Now, God himself came to Abraham, and here's what he promised him. I'm going to make you, Abraham, a great nation. You're going to be a great nation of people. I'm going to bless you. That was the second promise. That's good enough for me. If he just came to me and said, I'm going to bless you. And God has told me that before. I'm going to bless you. Why does he bless you and me? Because of Jesus. I'm going to bless you, he told him. Third, I'm going to make your name great. Is Abraham's name great? All right. Fourth, I'm going to make you a blessing to the whole world. How did that happen? Through Jesus Christ, who came out of his lineage. Five, I'm going to bless those who bless you. Six, here's a promise. I'm going to curse those that curse you. That's a promise. I want to be in number five and not number six. Number seven, I'm going, to make, uh, I'm going to make Abraham the one through whom all nations would be blessed. Eight, I'm going to give Abraham a seed as numerous as the stars of heaven. The descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people. He was the first one. We could say he was the first Semite. Nine, I'm going to emancipate that seed from enslavement in a foreign land after 400 years in the fourth generation. Of course, that was when they were in Egypt. And that seed will become very wealthy. 
and they did. God's judgment was promised against the nation that oppressed Abraham's descendants. It's a guarantee. Now, number 10, I'm going to allow Abraham to live to a ripe old age, and then he's going to die in peace, and that's exactly what happened. Number 11, I'm going to ensure that Abraham will inherit a land that will stretch from the Nile to the Euphrates, a land that right now our country is actively trying to force them to divide. And when you do that, there's going to be harsh judgments on you. And we will see harsh judgments falling on this country. I guarantee you, as surely as I stand here. Now, 12, it was to be an everlasting covenant. It's never going to go away. It's everlasting. It, goes, it stretches into eternity. And 13, the land of Canaan, in particular, was the guaranteed possession of the covenant seed of Abraham. Now, Paul takes up the great features of the Abrahamic covenant by underlining first its supreme goal. Let's see what it was. Verse 16, now the promise was made to Abraham and to his seed, that is son. Now let me point out as you look at this verse, do you see the word seed? In the original language, it's singular. It's not plural. It's singular. He does not say, and Paul makes the point, he does not say, and to seeds or many sons, speaking of many, but instead he says, and to your seed, singular, your son, which means Christ, Paul says. So everybody say with me, seed. Very important word in chapter 3, seed. It's capitalized and it's singular. Very important we catch this. Now, for better understanding, let me just look back a moment into biblical history to the mention of the seed. Where do we first see it? Where do we first see this word? In Genesis 3.15. In the beginning, the seed was the seed of the woman. Let's look at what it says. The text reads, quote, God says to the devil, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his what? The, the spike went through Jesus' heel on the cross. Now, the word seed in this passage is singular. It's not plural. Now, we know that Eve had many children. She had a lot of children. That's the way the human race took off because in Adam and Eve's day, it was not incest. It was the only way the earth could be populated. I don't looking at me like, you got to be kidding me, man. Gross. It, well, yeah, right. But back then, because people say, well, where where everybody find their wives and their husbands? Well, Adam and Eve's offspring. Okay. Now, but God is not focused on her children. All the children she had, we know they had a lot of children. He's not focused on her children, plural, but on one person that would one day be born who would bruise the serpent's head and God calls him the seed. The seed. That singular seed, says Paul, is Christ. So this is the first prophecy in the whole Bible. Genesis 3.15 is the very first Bible prophecy. I'm going to bring forth a man devil. I'm going to bring, he's talking to Satan, after the fall, and he says, devil, I'm going to bring forth a seed, a 
a human being and he is going to bruise your head, which means a death blow. And you are going to bruise his heel, which means you're going to hurt him, but it's not going to be a death blow. And God foretold in Genesis 3.15 the coming of Christ, both to redeem and to reign. The seed, next time we see it, is shown to be the seed of Abraham. So this whole idea of a seed that's going to come forth is is an ongoing theme in the Old Testament. The seed was next shown to be the seed of Abraham, restricting the promise of the coming Christ to a single, single family of the world, Abraham's family, or the Jewish people. You know, people get into a dispute these days. Jesus was white. Jesus was black. Jesus was Mexican. Jesus was all these. Let me tell you what he was. He was olive complexion. He was Jewish. And that's good enough for me. How about you? Because he, because now we, we go from the seed in Genesis 3.15 to the seed of Abraham. And God is letting us know, because with Genesis chapter 12, when we meet Abraham as Abram, and God is calling him out of Ur of the Chaldees, we are now seeing Genesis 3.15 beginning to be worked out in history. With the appearance of Abram, now God is working out the plan of redemption. When he called Abram, now he's going to move the seed into Abram's lineage. And he's going to be called Abraham, the father of many nations. This is why Paul points out concerning Abraham's seed, quote, I'm quoting Paul, God does not say, and to seeds, speaking of many, but instead, and to your seed, capital S, singular, which means Christ. So the seed in Genesis and Abraham's seed are one and the same. God's just working out his plan, starting in Genesis chapter 12. The first promise shows that he would be virgin born, but he'd be a member of the human race. But the next promise makes him a member of the Hebrew race through Abraham. Now later we find the seed again, and it's shown to be the seed of David. In 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16, you can read about it. And it shows there that he would be not only a member of the Hebrew family, but a member of the Hebrew royal family. Paul's point in Galatians 3.16 seems to be aimed at Abraham's disastrous attempt to produce the promised seed and the energy of the flesh. And that's why he's bringing the whole thing up, talking about the seed. Because you remember, Abraham got frustrated. He and Sarah could not conceive. She was barren. That was God's plan. So that when Isaac was finally born, it would be a miracle. 100-year-old man, 90-year-old woman. (laughs) So Abraham said, I just can't wait anymore. I don't understand this. God, you apparently don't know what's going on. You apparently don't see that we're barren. And you promised me a child. And how can all your promises come to pass if we don't have a child? Because, Lord, not one of your promises can happen if we don't have a child. So Abraham assumed God was clueless. Anybody ever been there? And he felt that he had to tell God what was wrong. And then, and then they decided to take matters into their own hands and try to work God's plan out in the strength of the flesh. And he involved himself with the Egyptian bondwoman Hagar. Read about it in Genesis 16. 
God would have none of it in the same way he will have none of you and me trying to work out his plan in the strength of the flesh. It will not happen in the strength of the flesh. Matter of fact, God will wait until your flesh is good and dead. And then he'll do it. Because supernatural things don't happen by natural means. So, Sarah would one day demand of Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son. Talking about Ishmael. And God endorsed her demand. Now all you women get ready to say amen. God agreed with her and said to Abraham, submit. (laughs) Hearken to her voice. He said, for watch this now, in Isaac shall thy seed, singular, be called. And once again, the word seed God uses here is singular, and it points to Jesus. So Paul is stressing that the use of the singular was by deliberate, divine choice to draw special attention to Christ as the designated seed of Abraham. Thank you, Jesus. I always feel like I'm on holy ground when I read these things. Because this is God's beautiful plan of redemption. And he's working it out. Now, Abraham's son Isaac, in whom the seed was to be called, was born contrary to nature. Almost kind of like Jesus, though it was not an immaculate conception. It was a pregnancy from two people who were physically dead in terms of being able to reproduce. They were dead. How many of you women would be believing God for a child at 90? How many of you would even want a child at 90? So how did it happen? It happened in response to Abraham's faith. So Isaac was the result of faith, not the works of the flesh, not the strength of the flesh, not the ability of the flesh, but he was the result of faith. Abraham believed God, and God did it. Now, Paul carries the whole thing further. The true seed was Christ. He was the one to whom the uh, promise pointed. All of the other promises centered in Jesus. So therefore, to share in the promises, you and I must necessarily belong to Christ. If we're not, we don't belong to Christ, we don't share in any of the promises God made. It all comes to us through Christ. So Paul says at the end of this chapter, read it with me, everybody, verse 29, and if you are Christ, I got two of you reading with me, come on, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And what's the promise? Salvation by faith. So the supreme goal of God's promise to Abraham was the arrival of Jesus Christ to planet earth, or what we call the advent. That was the supreme goal of God's promise to Abraham. Now everything says Paul, everything hinges on promise, not works. On Christ, not Moses. On faith, not law. Why is he telling the Galatians this? Because they have become infatuated, bewitched by these Judaistic teachers who were mixing works with faith. And so Abraham, or, or Paul is taking them to Abraham and saying, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. It is by faith and faith alone, not by works. Quit being so enamored with these people who are teaching you wrongly. Now next, Paul points out the sublime guarantee of the Abrahamic covenant. He says, quote, and this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, 
Read it with me, everybody. Cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. He's telling us right there what I've been saying all evening, that the Mosaic covenant did not annul the Abrahamic covenant. It did not change the way God works with you and me and with people back then. You got saved by faith back then. You get saved by faith now. The sublime guarantee was that the law, given hundreds of years after the Abrahamic covenant was given, could not annul or weaken in any way God's original contract with Abraham. And that's good news. That means we are not saved by works. It's not our performance. It's his. The law had its place and the law had its purpose. But it was never intended to replace the original and unconditional covenant with Abraham. Now, if the law had the power to annul the promise, if what Moses gave to man had the power to annul what God gave Abraham, then God would have broken his word to Abraham. And such a thought is unthinkable because God is not like you and me. He does not break covenant. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. If we forsake him, yet he still cannot and will not forsake us. Now, Paul's precious Galatian converts had been snared by people enamored of Moses and all of the rules and regulations and doing required by the law. So Paul takes them back to Abraham. And now he makes one more point. He refers to the sole ground of the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 18 in chapter 3 says, For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. If I get my inheritance by my works, then it's not a matter of promise anymore. It's a matter of works. But God gave it to Abraham, how everybody? By promise. Now let me give you an illustration. Suppose that I promised my son a laptop computer for Christmas. I haven't, but suppose I did. Now, when you, when you promise something for Christmas, the whole idea is we get it, right? It's a gift. It's a gift. No strings attached. What do you want for Christmas, son? Boy, I'd sure like that Apple laptop. I would love that laptop. Okay, all right. Okay, I'll do it. You got it. It's on the list, and, and yay and amen. It's going to be a Christmas gift. A promise is a promise. But what if a few weeks later, I were to add some conditions, having thought it over, some rules and requirements that he had to obey or he would not get the gift. You know, Jeremy, my lawn's got a lot of weeds in it. And I've got some tools in the garage, and I've been thinking about that laptop. And I'm going to get you that laptop, but I'm going to add a little addendum. Here's the addendum. If you pull all the weeds and I can't find one, you'll get your laptop. But if I find weeds after you've been out there and, 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 and they're not all gone and, and it still looks bad, then, gee, I hate to tell you, son, but it's not going to be under the tree. Santa won't come for you. Now, what have I done? I've turned it from a promise to works. Hard labor. Now, what would that make me? It would make me a, say it, cheat and a liar, and a double talker, and a con. It would make me a, a, a Judaizer. Now, 
I would have changed the ground rules. So what he was first expecting as a pure gift has now had works added to it. And this is what the Judaizers were doing. God says, I give you my, my salvation by faith through grace. And that's it. It's a gift. But then here comes the Judaizers. Well, that's true, but you're going to have to this and that and this and that and this and that. And if you don't, you're not going to get the gift. I would be making the attainment of the desired gift contingent on works, something that had to be done to earn the reward of a laptop computer. No longer was the laptop based on an unconditional promise. This is Paul's point. If the inheritance of eternal life is based on the works of the law, it's no longer a promise. That's what he's saying. But God had given it to Abraham by promise, not works. And Abraham's children, we are. If we receive God's promise as the gift of eternal life. You know, when we stand before the Lord at that judgment, and it's not going to be the great white throne judgment for sin, but the judgment seat of Christ, and we stand before him, you know why we're going to be there instead of at the great, great white throne? Not because of anything we did, but because he did it all for us. Like the song says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He did it all. Every nook and cranny of salvation, every jot and tittle, Jesus did it. Not you and me. And so we're just going to be, when, when we receive our crowns, John tells us in Revelations, we're going to throw them at his feet and just worship him because we're going to know we had nothing to do with this and only by pure, sheer grace were we saved. Amen. Now, next, Paul is giving the purpose of the law. He said, well, then why God give the law? Oh, that's easy. Here's why God gave the law. To probe the soul for sin and to prepare the soul for salvation. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 19. What purpose, then, does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed that being Jesus, should come to whom the promise was made. And the law was appointed through angels, and it was given by the hand of a mediator, the mediator being Moses. Now, the purpose of the Mosaic law, here's why God gave it, was to highlight and emphasize the existence and the extent of sin. You and I would not know how exceedingly sinful our sin is if it were not for the commandments. Thou shalt not this... You shall not kill, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, take the name, uh, Lord's name in vain, and so on and so forth. We would not, what the commandments did, the commandments put our sin under a microscope. And we went, whoa, wow, my sin is really sinful. Because God gave it parameters and borders and height and depth and dimensions with the commandments. Until the one to whom the Abrahamic covenant pointed to came. This one, the seed, would deal once and for all with the entire question of sin to God's eternal satisfaction. God is totally satisfied with what Jesus did for you and me. Amen? And when we call out on him, he is totally satisfied with our salvation and our forgiveness. Now, the great purpose of the law was to educate people in the scope and the seriousness of their sin. It was added, why everybody? Because of transgressions. That's why God gave it. Because of the transgressions of people. You know, in our day, nobody thinks they have any sin. 
You go out there in the public and say, are you a sinner? Well, no, you know, I'm a good person, basically, fundamentally. I'm a good person. You know what? God says, no, you're not. You're fallen. Now, you do good things, but you're a fallen person, and you have sin. And if that sin's not dealt with, you're going to lose your soul for all of eternity. You, you will not enter heaven's gates because of your sin. And so sometimes you've got to go out there and just quote the law to people. Just say, have you ever lied? Well, you know, every once in a while I've lied. Yeah, I've told some white lies. I bet you've told more than some white lies. Have you ever cussed, taken God's name in vain? Well, yeah, well, then you're going to hell. You're lost. You're a sinner. Well, I've never gotten a traffic ticket. That, that's not what we're talking about. There are some very, very wicked people who have never gotten a traffic ticket. The whole idea is we are in transgression. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. Notice that the Mosaic law was not given to Israel while they were in Egyptian bondage. God delivered them by the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts of their homes. He then took them miraculously across the Red Sea and destroyed their enemies behind them once they had crossed over. So then having first saved them and then separated them, God gave the law at Sinai to show how a saved person should live. Yet the people had hardly shaken the dust of uh, Egypt off their sandals before their complaining began. The water's bitter. I wish I was back in Egypt. Why'd you carry us out here, Moses, to die? You're a bad leader. Uh, I hate this stinking manna. I want meat. They went whoring after the gods of Moab. They went into sin after sin after sin. Over and over again, God told Moses, get out of the way so that I can kill them. I'm serious. That's what he did. Moses said, wait a minute. Now, that's a beautiful picture of intercession. It's not like God was out of control, had lost his temper like people on earth, and, and Moses had to calm God down. It's a beautiful picture of how God calls us to intercession, to stand in the gap. What does the intercessor do? He stands in the gap between God's wrath and the object of his wrath. And the intercessor says, don't do it, Lord. Abraham stood before God and said, Lord, if you can find 10, uh, 50 righteous, 40 righteous, 30, 20, 10 in Sodom, don't destroy it. God said, if I can find 10, you've got it. He couldn't find 10. He found three. Even, his, even Lot's sons-in-law were incinerated. So the intercessor stands in the gap, and that's what this is a picture of. God said, get out of the way so I can kill him. He knew that Moses would say, now, now Lord, what are, what are the heathen nations going to say about <laughs> your people and this divine experiment of taking them into the promised land if there's nobody to walk across the Jordan and set foot on the promised land? And God held his hand. That's the picture of intercession, not an out-of-control God. God is never out of control. His wrath is measured. His love is measured. Now, no wonder the law was added to show them the exceeding sinfulness of their sin. The law was given to give conscience a standard by which it could measure and monitor human behavior. If we didn't have the law, folks, that's why America was so blessed. Because our foundation was the Judeo 
Christian ethic and law. And God blessed it. And what are we watching right now? We're watching the whole foundation be obliterated, incinerated, destroyed, demolished. And it's going to send our country into complete chaos. Because if, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous even do? That's what the psalmist asked. So the law, listen, this is why it was so profoundly damaging to remove the commandments from the walls of our schools. Because the law gave to our children guidelines for their conscience. Gee, I mean, our illustrious Supreme Court, who is about to rule on the Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA, and they're about to rule on same-sex marriage, I have zero confidence they will rule in a way that will bless Bible-believing Christians. Because they have systematically, since the 60s, ruled on things that brought destruction and ruin to our country. In the 60s, they gave us Roe v. Wade, abortion. They gave us contraception on demand. They gave us no-fault divorce. They're about to give us same-sex marriage is just fine and legal and constitutional. They will continue to make decisions that are moronic. And I don't say that out of disrespect for the office, but the decisions are moronic. Professing themselves to be wise, they became morons. That's the Greek. And they also rule to take the commandments off the school walls. And so now what's in there? Metal detectors, mass murders, fear, teachers in fear of their life every time they go to school. Was it that way before the law was taken down from the wall? No, it was not. Now next, Paul contrasts the inferiority of the law to the promise made to Abraham. Look what he says in verse 20. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Moses, says Paul, mediated the Mosaic law in the presence of angels. But the Abrahamic covenant had neither angel to witness nor man to administer it because it depended on God and God alone. Which makes it superior. Now next, Paul continues to make the contrast. We're almost done. Let's look at verse 21 and 22. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have come through obeying law. But the Scripture has confined all under sin. All have sinned. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who do what? Believe. Paul puts an unerring focus on the inherent weakness of the law. In no way could the law give life, because no amount of doing can ever generate spiritual life in a dead human soul. That's why New Year's resolutions, they don't do anything. They don't save you. You may kick a habit for a few weeks. Most people, it goes away after a few weeks. You were inspired at the midnight hour. But, but listen, a New Year's resolution doesn't save you. Rehab doesn't save you. Turning over a new leaf doesn't save you. What saves you? Faith through grace in the promise. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the promise. Now, again, the law's purpose is to confine all under sin. 
that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, the law was given to prove our utter inability to attain a standard of righteousness in our own strength. And it was given to provide the life and righteousness we need through faith in Christ. Now, he tells us in closing two things, that the law was a taskmaster and a schoolmaster. Here's the taskmaster. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Now, under guard has the same meaning as trapped in a net or a snare. And it means that our utter inability to keep the law trapped us in a net of failure and futility. How many of you ever made up your mind, I am getting out of this sin, and you were back in in no time? You remember that? You remember the futility of trying to change you? And then you came to Christ, and he gave you a brand new nature. Now, he's saying the law kept us under guard, under watch, so that when grace and faith came, we would say, there it is. That's what I've been waiting for my whole life. Grace by faith. Now, our only hope was the faith which should afterward be revealed. So it was a taskmaster, but it was also a schoolmaster. It taught us. Verse 24, therefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be, say it with me, justified by faith. It constantly demanded, that is the law, do this, don't do that. Do, 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 don't, don't, don't. Now, however, the schoolmaster is not needed because faith has come. Explains Paul, like Abraham, we are justified by faith. It's not do, 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 don't, 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 go here, go there, don't this, don't that, do this, do that. It's no longer that. It is, I believe you, righteous. I believe you justified. I believe you saved. It's just that simple. Now let's stand up and we're going to read this last verse together and we'll finish the last three verses in this chapter next week. But let's read this together because this is really the, 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 it sums the whole thing up. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Praise God. Praise God. <clears throat> so in summary, the law was added through Moses, not to annul the promise made to Abraham, but to show us how helpless we are when it comes to meeting our obligations to God. It's also intended to teach us how great is our need of the promised seed. The chief focus of God's great promise to Abraham and next time, we're going to see, now are we the sons of God. Can we lift our hands and just thank the Lord for his amazing grace that we're no longer under law, but we're under grace. It's not up to us. It's up to him. Lord, thank you for so great a salvation that we stand by faith. And Lord, thank you that when we looked up and received the promise, the Holy Spirit came and dwelt within us and changed our nature and brought us to spiritual life, resurrected us from the spiritual dead. And it happened by faith 
through grace. Thank you for that amazing grace, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we praise you and we thank you. Can we just sing a stanza or two of a